1: Love
2: Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check. Mic check. One, two. One, two. One, two. For you. Yeah. Ha. You know what I'm saying? Word up. it's that? Biblical. Biblical. Theology. Theology. Study. of The person of God. Attributes. God. <coughs> God's Word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit, he's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic, Uh, and that's biblical theology, that phrase alone, they give some people allergies, Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian's not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty. Or it's a travesty. Or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical, we gotta see. The importance of biblical theology What do I mean by biblical theology The whole theme of the scripture And God's the key is following the Bible's storyline And the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine What he starts? He finishes with dedication A work of art From Genesis to Revelation From God's creation To man's fall To redemption To consummation His designs and structure Each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor His worthiness sits in throne in the heavens sturdy and fixed. To see the importance of biblical theology yeah. the lord has not decided to keep us guessing Thank you lord he gave us the word providing us correction oh, and yeah. the spirit for guidance and direction Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflection. So we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mince meat. If our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep, theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless, and we'll experience true peace. With our yeah. Because we we'll know the meaning is of Jesus, Jesus. and yeah. his death. Yeah. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to
3: idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. Another edition of Theology Math, your host Devin Peru, So glad you guys could join us uh, for another episode. Uh, we've uh, been doing this show now since about June. Uh, have just been having a ton of fun with it. Have been able to have just some absolutely incredible, good guests. Um, last week we were having some uh, some pretty bad technical difficulties, and from what I've seen uh, from other People who have blog talk shows—they uh, were also having issues. <clears throat> Looks like the uh, issues have been cleared up, uh, but because of the problems last week, we ended up having to close uh, the show early. I—I I couldn't hear hear our guest. Uh, so what we wanted to do today was bring him back um, because the topic we find is very important. It's—it's. Uh, uh, it's, it's when you deal with the doctrine of hell, you have Christians that attack it, uh, you have cultist groups that attack it, and you also of course have skeptics. So you need to be able to uh be able to have a, a reasoned defense for the doctrine of hell. So the show is, is very important and uh we want it to bring and so we're gonna be dealing with that. And what I want to do, uh, first of all, let me go ahead and open up some prayer, <coughs> and we'll, we'll kind of get into some stuff here. Lord, we want to thank you for another opportunity, Lord, to be able to come on the, with the radio, Lord, and just proclaim your name, proclaim your truth. Our desire, Lord, is to honor you first and foremost. We seek to give you glory. We seek to defend your word. We seek to be good ambassadors to Christ, which He's called us to do. Second Corinthians ten five tells us we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So we're called to be able to give a defense, first Peter three fifteen. Everyone who asks for a reason and the hope that's within it tell us in Second Timothy two fifteen to study to show ourselves the truth. And that's definitely what we want to do. So we ask, Lord, that uh, you deal with our time, bless us, and be with uh, us this night. We pray this in the name of our Lord and our Master, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, I wanted to, uh, let me get a few things to get that out of the way. Uh, if you guys are not on, uh, on, if you have not found us on Facebook, uh, you can go to facebook.com slash theology matters with the police. Facebook.com slash Theology Matters with the police. Uh we have a bunch of, uh, of our own podcasts there, uh, that you can listen to. And uh we've done a lot of good shows. We've uh now do we do we try and bring on some of the best guests uh and some of the top thinkers of the day. We've had uh, we had Dr. Geisler, Tom um, Geisler on here if you guys are familiar with some of his work. He's uh in my mind, uh, probably the greatest living apologist. Um, we've had uh, Dr. Paul Copan, who came on, did a whole hour and a half answering objections. We've had Chandon Godfrey, uh, and others. And uh, on, as well as that, we've also had uh, some debates. Uh, we did a, a debate with a Roman Catholic, uh, Devin Rose, uh, who debated my friend Nathaniel Taylor on the issue of Sola Scriptura. Uh, we had my good friend uh, Mike Willenborg a debate uh, a friend of mine who's a Mormon on the doctrine of God. And uh, we plan actually to have a few more. We had uh, John Ferrer, uh, debate president of the Aces Experience, Matt Dillahunty, uh which his show is, is on uh, every week, if you guys are familiar with him. Uh, and good news is I've actually been in contact with him and he has agreed to come back on the show. And uh the last time he was on it was the most the most downloaded uh show we've ever done. Uh I thought both John and Matt did a great job uh explaining the views. Of course, you know, I'm a theist, I'm a Christian, so uh, you know, it's no guess where I come down on the issue. Uh but you know, this show we really want to have good reasoned, rational dialogue. Uh, we want to be able to to talk with those who, who don't agree with us and uh, have good rational dialogue, and that's why we do that. Uh, you know, I've known people uh, who have grown up in in a Christian home, and I was I was one of those who um, you're not really taught how to defend your faith, and you don't know how to defend your faith. And I don't, I don't blame my parents for this because they were they were new as well to being they so you know they didn't they didn't know a lot of this stuff um but I see the the absolute importance uh, of it, and so with this show, the goal is to to be able to defend the faith uh to demonstrate that theology does matter. you know we live in a time and an age where sadly the, you know so much of the church has backed off of good sound biblical theology, and we want to be entertained, we want to be kind of coddled, we just want to, really, a lot of times what's happening is we're making a God in our own image, in our own mind, and we want to talk about uh, a God who is love, and then we redefine what we mean by love, uh, and never look at any of his other attributes. So theology matters, and that's that's why we do what we do. So kind of as a little update here, uh, next week we're going to have Eric Chabot on the show. Uh, last time he was on, we did a two hour show on objections uh, Jewish objections to Christianity. Jewish objections to Christianity. It was a great show. A lot of people loved it. A lot of people have been uh, requesting Eric to come back. So we're going to do uh, a second show next week where we're going to dive into some of those uh, objections uh, if you have Jewish friends. Uh, and I don't, you know, a lot of Christians really enjoy kind of studying the history of Judaism, seeing how it connects uh with the New Testament and, you know, maybe you don't know how to share your faith uh with uh with someone who is Jewish and uh, that would be a good show for you to be able to listen to. June ninth, uh I am or I'm sorry, May ninth. May ninth. Uh I am so excited. Uh we're going to be having uh a guy that is that has been a, an absolute hero of the face of mine for for numerous years. I've gave my testimony, I think, before about growing up in a, in a Christian home, uh, but having a lot of questions, not having a lot of answers. One of the things that, uh, that really uh, bothered me growing up was the creation evolution issue. And uh, I didn't know how to really resolve uh, a lot of the tensions that I saw uh, between what you think you're hearing in science class and what is actually uh, real good science. And so uh, one of the first ministries that I ran into was Answers in Genesis. And um, at the time, uh, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati was working there uh, with them. Uh, Since then, um, they kind of broke off, and he started another group, uh, Creation Ministries International. And uh, Jonathan Sarfati, he has written numerous books. uh, He wrote... uh, (laughs) (coughs) sorry about that, a little leftover cough. but he wrote the book Refuting Evolution 1 and 2, and Refuting Evolution 1 is actually the best-selling creationist book ever. Uh, It's well over, I think, close to or even more than 500,000 copies have been sold. Um, He did a sequel to that called Refuting Evolution 2, And uh, what happened was, during this time, PBS had done a series uh, called Evolution, and it was seven or eight parts uh, to that. And uh, as typical of PBS, uh, it was very much evolutionary propaganda, and you certainly don't see both sides fairly. And uh, so Jonathan Sarfati uh, wrote a book responding to them. Also, right around that same time, Scientific American, which is kind of a well-known... Uh, science Magazine, uh, not real technical, but kind of at a popular level, uh, had written an article, uh, I think it was by the editor, um, titled, How, uh, 15 Ways to Respond to Creationist Nonsense. And uh, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, uh, within 72 hours, had a point-by-point response to scientific Americans on the Internet. And uh, it just decimated their view, And uh, you can actually find that on the web. Um, But uh, I think, in fact, my memory recalls they threatened to sue answers in Genesis unless they took it down and claiming copyright infringement or something like that. But bottom line is, of course, they don't want the other side to be out. Uh, They just uh, want one side to be heard, and that's why when you see PBS, Discovery, History Channel when it's dealing with issues like uh, you know creation and intelligent design just, you don't you're not going to hear both sides you're not going to hear them fairly perfect example Dover trial Nova did a Nova you know, PBS science show I uh, did a whole two hour show on this few years back it was, uh, it was ridiculous it really was so I say that all to say Jonathan Sarfati will be with us May ninth and we're going to be looking at his book that he wrote is a point-by-point response to Richard Dawkins. Uh, Dawkins' book was called uh, The Greatest Show on Earth. And in this book, he attempts to um, give his best evidence and best proof for evolution. He says in his other book, uh, Climbing Mount Paul Probable, um, The Blind Watchmaker, Selfish Gene, some of these he said that, you know, he, he looked back and he looked through the the works that he's done and he noticed he's never really done a, show, or a book um, really just defending and detailing uh, the theory of evolution. So he came out with his book called The Greatest Show on Earth. So Dr. Farfati responded with a book called The Greatest Hope on Earth. And uh, I've been going through it. Uh, I've gone through it a couple times, but I'm going through it again. And uh, it is it is an incredible book. And I was really recommend you guys can get it off Amazon. You can get it for pretty cheap, ten bucks or something like that. Phenomenal book. Uh but he's gonna be with us May night and uh he's gonna be taking your calls. Uh we're gonna deal with uh with a lot of those issues. Uh, also we're gonna get into the age of the earth. Uh Joseph Sarfati is a uh you know unashamedly young earth creationist. I'm a young earth creationist as well. Uh so you know we would be more than willing to have some good Reasonable, friendly dialogue with uh, other believers who may not agree with us. And then, let's see, May 16th, uh, another awesome show. We're going to have Dr. Lee Cordwin. is going to come on. We're going to do a whole show on Islam. Dr. Cordwin is an amazing guy. He's he's, uh, taught at universities around the world. He's an adjunct professor uh, at Southern Evangelical Seminary, where I go, and um, it's going to be a to be an awesome show, a wealth of knowledge. So that'll be May 16th. And then we're looking also in either June or July. We've got two debates coming up we're going to be doing for you guys. Probably in, in June, maybe later June, we're going to do a debate on um, Calvinism versus Arminianism. And we're going to, because it's such a broad topic, we're going to have to narrow something down to more of a a narrow topic, uh, because you're just not going to be able to, to debate all of that in two hours. So we're looking at something, uh, possibly unconditional election. And um, uh, Matthew Graham, good friend of mine, SES uh, grad, uh, is going to be representing the Armenian side. And Nathaniel Taylor, who's been on the show a couple of times, um, is going to be defending the reformed Calvinist. And so that is going to be a discussion, I promise you. You guys are not going to want to miss. And we'll get the dates nailed down on that. And then in July, uh, as I said earlier, I've been in contact with Matt Dillahunty, the president for the AC Experience. He is going to be on the show. And uh, I think we're actually going to be able to do the date on July 4th. Uh, it's not positive yet, but it's looking that way. And uh, we're going to bring on my good friend Mike Willenborg. Uh, who's been on the show a couple times, he debated, uh, uh, my Mormon friend, Uh, and we're going to do another debate. Last time when when Matt Dillahunty was on, the debate kind of focused more on morality and the grounding for uh, how do we get morals um, in a, a, you know, what best account for morality, theism or atheism. And uh, it was a good discussion, Uh, it was very profitable, you know, very downloaded, Uh, People loved it, but uh, this time we want to look at some more of the traditional arguments for God's existence, and uh, that'll be a great show. So we definitely have a... The remaining time, though, uh, we've got about 10 minutes or so uh, before my friend uh, Ted comes on and we we get into the show looking at the doctrine of hell. I wanted to to go over this story that has not really had a whole lot of... It's getting a lot more media attention now, but uh, at the beginning it really wasn't getting any. And um, it's just a it's a horrific, horrific case. Um, I'm looking on the abolish abortion blog uh, called uh, the All American Four Story Top Ten Godsmell Trial Revelation. So what's happened is there's this abortionist in Philadelphia. Who is basically being charged with uh, infanticide, and infanticide is basically it's infant murder. And there's been numerous cases uh, documented where this man, this abortionist, Kermit Gosnell, uh, after having delivered the babies alive, just did some absolutely horrendous, horrific things. Now, I want to be clear, and I want to I want to tie this into uh, into my kind of the larger picture here, I think all abortion is is murder, taking the life of an innocent human being. But you know, some of the some of the 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 things going on in this case is just absolutely horrendous. So I wanted to look at uh, look at this article again. That if you're on your computer, uh, you can go to abolishabortion.com and the story called. Uh, all American Horror Story Top 10 Gosnell Trial Revelation. I thought maybe we start at number 10. It uh, says so it was revealed that on the night patient died, the emergency exit uh, uh, was found to be locked and down a hall lay crammed full of broken office furniture and other debris. Workers could not find the keys, and emergency personnel stopped a way to get there. Code Blue patient out of the facility and into an ambulance. Some of the things that uh, that they have, they have found in this facility, it's just, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's, uh, you know, all kind of different medical codes, fire codes, sanitary codes uh, have been uh, just absolutely
1: disregarded
3: uh, by this man. and. Um, Some of these things very well could have cost some of the people their lives that died while getting uh, abortions. Number nine, it says, Godfiel's sister-in-law testified that it was part of her cleaning duty to dispose of the large bottle on the suction machine that would fill with blood and fetal remains. Um, Just to be clear, this gets very gruesome, and it's very terrible. Um, So if you have young listeners, you may need to know what to do to have them leave the room for a few minutes, uh, 10 minutes or so. But I, 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 we have to talk about this. We, we absolutely have to talk about this. We, we need to get it out there. Uh, but it says she would pour the blood in the baby parts into the thing and climb them up using the garden disposal. I mean, it really kind of shows you the way that these people view life and human life. Right in the dumpster, right in the trash, right down the garbage disposal. It is such a, a, a wicked, horrible, awful, pagan practice. It's such a terrible, unbiblical view of, of human life. It's just disgusting. Number eight says prosecutors have cited dozens of jars, again, this is through some dozens of jars of severed baby feet as an example of Gosnell's. Idiosyn- idiosyncratic and illegal practice of providing abortions for cash for women pregnant longer than twenty four weeks, uh, which is the normal cutoff there in Pennsylvania. Said that uh the assistant district attorney Joanne Escator to uh of the jars of beef with some kind of bizarre trophy does know cats. Number seven. Uh, a baby was described being so large that his feet and arms hung out over the sides of the shoebox that they put him in. And when it's worth, the it Godfrey no actually joked about the baby's size, saying, the baby's big enough to walk around with me or even walk with me to the bus stop. See, folks, so these people are depraved. And this is really, it, it, it speaks to What is in the heart, what is in the human heart? The wickedness of man. They not only do such wicked, evil things, but they gloat about it. They find pleasure in doing it. It's fun to them. Their minds are so darkened, and uh, they're so depraved, uh, that these people could actually laugh and tell jokes like committing homicide. And murder on these babies. Number six, another Gosnell clinic worker testified that she took photos of one particularly large baby, referred to uh, prosecutors as baby A, with her cell phone that was estimated about 30 weeks gestation. The baby had been alive, born alive, delivered alive, into a toilet, where she then cut the baby's throat. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. You would think that the most innocent among us, the most innocent among us, those in the womb, would be protected and would be safe. Sadly, those in the womb are targeted. Sadly, those in the womb, especially if you're a minority, I think it's two out of four African-American women have an abortion. So the most dangerous place to be is actually the womb. In some cases, it's a minority. Number five, uh, one day after a former employee described how she heard a baby scream during a live birth abortion, another worker at the Prima-Daznell House of Horrors Abortion clinic testified that she saw a baby jump when she snipped her neck in an abortion. The arm jumped, showing the jury by raising her arm. I mean, what you know? I just, what do you say? What do you say to this, this kind of stuff? I'm not going to go further because it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse and it's more and more and more to praise. But I want to, I want to point out, you know, the media has, uh, has completely ignored this story. Uh, Mark Cahill, who's uh, a contributor on Fox News, was pretty honest about it. He said, you know. The reason people are ignoring this, and who supports abortion, by the way, uh, the reason people you know, support, as as been ignoring it is because it's, uh, they think it's going to look badly for the abortion industry. It's going to look, you know, it's going to hurt their face. You know, there's been a real shift uh, in a lot of the way people looked at this uh, issue of abortion, and uh, we've actually seen, seen a swing uh, in a lot of cases, uh, in the country where now you are, you are having people that uh, more people are pro-life, themselves pro-life more than they would pro-choice. And that's a good thing. And uh, one comment in the chat room says the media is ignoring this because they don't want people to see the truth. And uh, right, you're absolutely right. They don't want them to see the truth. And this is the truth, folks. Infanticide is murdering the baby after the baby's out of the womb. No different than murdering the baby in the world. And I'm going to give you guys an acronym. Uh, Scott Klusendorf. You guys are familiar with him. Uh, he runs uh, LCI. He's got a, got a really good podcast, wrote the book, um, The Case for Life, does a lot of debates. Uh, go to YouTube. You can, you can watch some of his debates against uh, I think a couple of ACLU lawyers and go you know, to defend abortion. They came with a very good acronym of really how to defeat almost all of your, your arguments for abortion because they're always going to fall normally into these same categories. Uh, the acronym is SLED, S L E D, SLED. And the S stands for size. A lot of people will be in support of abortion or they won't they won't take abortion serious because they will say, what a small you know, the, the fetus is. Um, even if they you know, even if life starts at conception, I think that can be easily demonstrated through scientific evidence. Life starts at conception. Um, it doesn't matter the size. It doesn't matter if it's the size of the, of the period on a page or Shaquille O'Neal. It's not any more human. There is no new genetic information added after the moment of conception. There's more genetic information added, but not you. At conception, all of your DNA, all your programming for life, what color eyes, hair, da 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 that's already set. At conception. Life starts at conception. So it's 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 irrespective of size. A three year old's not as big as uh, you know, as a basketball player. But that doesn't mean that three year old is less like human than the basketball player, It would still deserve the same right. The L, level of development. Well, a three-year-old is not as developed as a 50-year-old. But we wouldn't say that the three-year-old is less human. Of course we wouldn't say that. The level of development, that's the difference. Not whether it's a human being. They have size, they have level of development, and then you have the environment. Some people think that it's it's okay to murder the baby in the womb, uh, but after the baby is born, then that that is wrong. We're horrified at the Josmail case because these abortions uh or murders happened outside of the womb. Right? The baby's born in the toilet, the woman goes, she's a knife, which the baby's throat. Uh, the baby's born to take a pair of scissors jab the baby in the head. By the way, these are all practices that uh, our dear president uh, was fine with. He was fine with these practices. That's what is so awful about it, is you have so many Christians that, you know, sorry, they voted for him, they helped put him in office. It's not a biblical worldview. It's not a biblical worldview at all. And uh, our president supports abortion, and even infanticide. Environment doesn't determine whether or not the baby is, is a human being or not. Killing the baby inside of the womb is no different than killing the baby outside of the womb. You hear all the time people will say, well, I'm against abortion in, in, except in cases of, uh, of a
1: for example.
3: And then if you gave them the scenario, what if the mother has the baby, and then two years later she's washing dishes, has a horrible flashback, gets a knife, murders her child. She should she be allowed to do that because the baby was born and raised? Well everyone's going to say, well, of course not. Why? Well she had the baby two years ago. Well it's no more it's no more of a human two years later than it was at conception. Life starts at conception. Again, the difference is going to be the size and the level of development. But the ontology The essence is still the same. It's still a human being. Environment is not a good argument for abortion. Lastly, dependency. Uh, The baby depends on the mother. Well, you you look at, I'm thinking of myself. When I was in a a coma, I was depending on a ventilator. I was depending on an oscillator. I was depending uh, on dialysis. I was depending on a lot of things I couldn't do for myself. It's not okay to go ahead and Kill them because they're dependent. Is it? What about paraplegic? You know, just, you know let them die because uh, you know they're dependent on us. That's ridiculous. See what what those kind of arguments boil down to is function, right? What can they do? Well, well they can't do this, so therefore they're less valuable. Well, I tell you folks, it's not the road we want to go down as a country. You think, well, you know, you're not a baby anymore, so you're safe. Well, no, not really, because those things are just going to be used for the elderly. What about your grandma? You might have Alzheimer's disease or another disease. She's dependent on another or not self-aware. Is it okay to kill them? Fox News is going to be doing a story on this Joswell case, and uh, it's going going to be good. I would encourage people to listen to it. And uh, and definitely definitely get in there and uh, let it let it known. Share it on your Facebook, uh, email it around. Get this stuff out. People need to know about this case. Absolutely uh, horrific. And uh, really do need to get people aware of this case. So with that being said, we got our our friend back, our guest Ted. Last week we were having some technical difficulties, this week we're back and forth, I don't think we've had any problems so far, so I think we're going to be good to go. Ted, you there? Yes, I am. How's it going, man? Doing
4: great, David, uh, good to hear from you, brother.
3: Good to hear from you, too, man, I apologize about last week for so many of those uh problems we were having.
4: Hey, no problem, it's uh, not your fault, brother.
3: <laughs> well, I'm glad you're back. And uh, hopefully,
4: have a good, smooth show this time around. So. <laughs> I hope
3: so, too. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Ted.
4: Well, I'm uh, currently serving as the executive director of crossexamine.org um, with the ministry of Frank Turek. Uh, many people know Frank Turek from uh, Cross Examine TV, uh, it's on the NRB network. Uh, also, he, he co authored the book with uh, Dr. Norman Geisler titled I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Uh, he also uh, wrote a book uh, called uh, titled uh, "Legislating Morality," also with Dr. Geisler, and he also wrote a book on same-sex marriage called "Correct, Not Politically Correct." Uh, you know, so a lot, of, a lot of folks are familiar with Frank. So anyway, I, I started working for Frank um, full time back in, last August of t- 2012, and so uh, Frank and I have been friends for about 15 years, and it just seems kind of like a kind of a natural fit. Uh I also teach as an adjunct professor at uh, two schools here in Charlotte, two seminaries at uh, Southern Evangelical Bible College, which is part of SES, the school that you and I attended, and also another school in Charlotte called New Life Theological Seminary, which is located in downtown Charlotte. So I've been doing I've been teaching seminary classes for about uh about nine or ten years now.
3: That's right. You were uh, you're my old old testament uh professor there.
4: That's right. I remember you were you were one of my star pupils.
3: <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, no, you you
4: did great, Devin. We really did a great job, and we're really really proud of you, brother, and all that uh, all that you're doing for the kingdom.
3: I uh, appreciate that, man. Appreciate that a lot. Guys like you definitely poured into me and uh, have helped me so much.
4: Well, thank you, brother.
3: Tell us a little bit, uh, kind of, about Cross Examined, and uh, you know, what's the purpose and uh, the mission and the vision
4: uh, of Cross examines Sure. Um, about seven or eight years ago, uh, there was a, a report that came out, and I'm not sure exactly. I'm not 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 clear on this, but I think it was Barna. It could have been another uh, research organization, but it it came out and it basically said that 75 percent of Young people that is uh high schooler students who graduate and go into college when they leave the they grow up, those, in other words those who grow up in the church when they leave the church and they go to college uh seventy five percent of those young people will not come back to church and in fact a uh, a very high percentage of those will actually uh will actually go you know move away from Christianity and to a more secular world view and you know that that statistic came out again about you know, seven or eight years ago, and, and, and some people said, "Well, you know, maybe that's a little extreme." Well, as the numbers have been coming in over the past few years, uh, that number is actually um, is, is basically holds steady, held steady. And uh, some new research that can, it's come out in Barna is showing that uh, a group called the Mosaics, as far as you know, age group goes—in other words, the youngest, uh, next generation that's coming up in America—they are they're actually more and more. Uh, Barna calls them post-Christian or extremely post-Christian. So uh, the younger the younger the demographic, the more secularized that they are. And so uh, in the church, the, the cross examine exists to try to fill in the gap where the church is really not filling in the need of trying to provide solid reasons why Christianity is true. Um, as Frank has said, a lot, a lot of children will, a lot of kids will leave the faith uh, because they've never really been talked into it they've never really, you know, they've never really learned, you know, Christianity was their parents' religion. It really wasn't their faith. So when they go to college and their professors will, you know, give them counter-evidence for the Gospels or, or for the Resurrection or for or for the Bible, then they will, uh, you know, they'll uh, tend toward believing what their professors teach them. So, you know, we, we try to provide uh, counter-examples. We, we take, you know, arguments and we look at them in light of Scripture, in light of reason, and we try to we try to provide solid reasons and evidence why uh, people ought to believe that Christianity is true. So we go to colleges, we go to churches, we go to really anywhere that we're invited. Uh, both Frank and myself, uh, you know, me coming on just last year, but Frank has got a very very busy speaking schedule. He debates. You know, last week he debated David Silverman down at uh, Shreveport, Louisiana. Um, I speak. My, you know, I can speak on anything that Frank does, but uh, Frank's got his thing. But uh, I, I kind of focus on the historical side of things. We, uh, I talk uh, on archaeology and the Bible. I have a presentation called "Digging for Truth," which, uh, by the way, I'm actually uh, trying to convert into a book form right now. So, uh, if you'll pray for me on that. But uh, anyway, so it's really keeping me busy. And uh, this summer, we've got uh, a couple of exciting things coming up. Um, people, if they have the if they have the the money and the funds to do it, Frank is actually going on a uh, Israel Cruz and also the footsteps of Paul Cruz coming up at the end of May. And I think you can still sign up for it. Go to our website, crossexamined.org, and folks can uh can check it out there. Also uh uh Devin we have a uh a training event that we do every summer called CIA uh which stands for Cross Examined Instructors Academy and uh it's it's three days of intensive apologetics training so it's for people who already kind of sort of have a knowledge of apologetics but who want to take their apologetics training to the next level and they want to teach at either their church or they want to teach small groups or whatever. Um, what we do is we train them on the cross-examined you know, questions and the issues that Frank talks about, uh, really kind of focuses around four questions. And the four questions that we focus on are uh, does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? and is the New Testament historically reliable? Those are the four questions that we kind of focus around and uh, so this year we have at cross examine Instructors Academy uh, I believe it's August the 8th through the 10th this year and again people can go to the website and check it out CIA Academy uh, Jay Warner Wallace uh, who wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity uh, also Greg Kokel who Stand to Reason, Brett Kunkel as well our own Dr. Frank Turek, uh, myself as well as Dr. Richard Howe and maybe a couple others so um a lot of a lot of great folks uh excluding myself but uh it's g- really good training cuz what you do is you actually you actually have to give a presentation in front of these guys and it really helps you to know what you believe and it, re- it really helps you to hone your skills and, and your presentation skills so um you know it's they, very very busy it's great i love it it's great work and um uh, you know there's there's just so much work to be done it kind of reminds you of the words of Jesus you know the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few
3: that's right. Let's look for a minute at some of the objections that uh, people will give to apologetics. Some of the most hardy, uh people I see to uh, end up in discussions with are Christians who think uh, that apologetics are just uh, useless, not uh, needed, and you see this all the time. With They um, put almost like a dichotomy between faith and reason. How do you respond to that? Those Christians that would say you don't need evidence, you just need faith. Um, apologetics is um, almost viewed as an enemy. Almost like it's, if you can if you can use reason and logic, then that takes away. Absolutely,
4: to that? yeah. Well, that's the, that's the, that's the issue, uh, Devin. Is how do we define faith? And from my understanding of Scripture, uh, biblical faith is not a blind faith. It's not a faith in faith. That's actually that's actually a philosophy called fideism, and nowhere in Scripture do I see the Bible defend this view that you have to believe apart from evidence. Um, the the Bible is very clear that uh, you know that you, you absolutely have to have faith in order to, to please God. And that Scripture is very clear about that. But God doesn't ask us to, to sacrifice our brain when we come to Him. Uh, you know, I believe that the Holy Spirit uses evidence, and that's the real question. Is is uh, can the holy spirit save someone apart from evidence and that, and certainly the holy spirit does the work of bringing someone to salvation but the question is does he does he use the does he bring someone to to Christ apart from evidence and as a classical apologist i believe that he doesn't i think that the that the holy spirit uses evidence uh in order to bring people to Christ uh he uses of course creation uh the heavens declare the glory of god psalm 19 romans chapter 1 romans chapter 2 verses 2 through 12 uh, all speak of uh, two areas in, in uh, what we call general revelation that speak that the creation speaks of God's glory and is evidence that there is a God. In fact, there's so much evidence that that Paul says that, that men are without excuse. Uh, the second thing I would say, Devin, is uh, that we are commanded in Scripture to defend our faith. Uh, this is not just an opinion. This is not just some hobby of some Christians, we're, we are actually commanded in First Peter chapter three, verse fifteen. Uh, Peter actually says that um, that we are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts and always be ready to give an answer. And that Greek word for answer is apologia. Always be ready to give an answer for the reason, the hope that is within you. But do this with gentleness and respect. And I think I think people often forget that last part there. But it's very very uh, you know very important that we when we defend our faith and when we show reasons for the faith that we do it with gentleness and respect uh so we're commanded to do it Jude chapter 1 verse 3 says uh I urge you brothers to contend for the faith once and for all uh entrusted to the saints uh, there's other passages in in Paul's letters where Paul says that we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ so um we demolish strongholds and arguments and everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of of God so if there are ideas and if there are things that set themselves up against the knowledge of Christ, then as Christians we are commanded to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And part of part of loving God with our mind means that we use the minds that God has given us because we are created in his image. And I believe God wants us to use the minds that he's given us. Um, but that being said, another one objection you know that, that's come to mind is that I've I've heard Christians say, well – you know um you know i'm not really an educated person so i don't really have to know all this apologetics all i have is my testimony and and again i don't want to diminish testimony i mean in fact the, the scripture is very clear that that testimony is very important but testimony alone um is not a great necessarily apologetic by itself i think that i think that your testimony has to be joined with solid reasons and evidence so when we're giving reasons and evidence if our life doesn't match our message then that's not a good thing um we we want to be congruent with our with our message um in fact William Lane Craig said I don't know if you have his book Reasonable Faith but at the very last chapter I don't know if Devin if you've read this but the very last chapter this uh, Craig says something very interesting he says that it's, it's, it's the, in fact it's simply titled the greatest apologetic and do you know what he says the who, what the greatest apologetic is
3: it's the assurance of the of the holy spirit right
4: no, he actually says the greatest apologetic is your life
3: oh, okay. that's
4: what that's what Bill Craig said <laughs> so <laughs> wow. very interesting but i but again i, I the only thing I, I would be careful about about just using pure testimony and say, Well, Christ changed my life and i I certainly did Christ does change our life, but you know the thing about that is other other christians or excuse me other religions could say that as well, you know the Buddhist yeah. or uh, the Muslim, Mormon. or well,
3: you uh, know, we saw the Mormons. You know, Mormons were some of the nicest, uh, most moral people you'll ever meet.
4: You know? Absolutely. So, again, and again, not to diminish a uh, person's testimony, but um, if we're just if we're just pitting someone's experience against another person's experience, then that's not, to me, a proper way to adjudicate or to judge between two worldviews, as well my experience versus your experience, because there's got to be something outside of our experience. By which we ground reality, and uh, again, we you know you and I believe that truth is external to our minds, and that we can know it. So, anyway, that's that's my thoughts on that.
3: Yeah, <laughs> we got about fifteen minutes left before we switch gears and go into uh, the doctor of health. Uh, maybe listening and have some questions uh, regarding apologetics and the need for it. Um, call in at seven six zero. Five four two three nine zero seven at 760 542 We'd love to take the calls, and we'll put right through with Ted. Uh, Ted, let me ask you, um, when you're dealing with some of these uh, these college students, and they ask you, um, and I'm sure maybe there's maybe even parents out there listening now uh, who have kids that uh, have been brought up in the church and they're just kind of seem to be uh, drifting off, all uh, right? If the student asks you, "What evidence do you have that God exists, besides some old book they claim uh, that God exists?" How do you guys sure. say, not CIA, cross-examine? Uh, how do you guys uh, deal with that? What do, what do you guys say?
4: Oh, for for God's existence—is that what you are asking?
3: Yeah, yeah. You know, without because yeah. uh, a lot of the you know students are going to say, "Well, we don't want to just hear what the Bible says." So is there something outside of the Bible? Uh, that would just sure. reason to
4: think God is good. Absolutely, yeah. Um that's that's and that's in fact where we begin is is we we believe a- again as uh, Frank and myself as classical apologists we believe that that we can de- demonstrate uh um using reasons and using good arguments that there is a God uh without ref- actually referring to the Bible. Now why would we do that? Why would why would we try to defend God's existence apart from the Bible? Because well, the main reason is because um, most people don't believe the Bible's true. I mean, I believe it's true and you believe it's true, but when you're talking to an atheist, if we ask them to believe the Bible, well, why should they believe the Bible? Um, you know, because we say so or because, you know, it's historically reliable? Now, certainly it is historically reliable, but, uh, again, that doesn't necessarily prove that it's a divine book. There has to be a God in order for them to believe its message, so... We think that it's important to get the cart or the horse before the cart, and so we begin with God's existence, and we argue, at least Frank, Frank and I, we argue from three basic uh, arguments: we the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, or rather the design argument, and and then the moral argument. And in a nutshell, uh, it basically goes like this: the cosmological argument begins with the origin of the universe, uh, which essentially s- says that. Um, Uh, argues that there must have been a first cause of the universe that must have been outside of the universe because science, um, in particular the science of cosmology and astronomy, shows that the universe came into existence out of nothing a finite time ago. And if the universe came into existence out of nothing, and the universe, is, uh, as cosmologists have defined it, is all space, time, and matter, If, if the universe came into existence out of nothing then there must have been a cause outside of the universe – in other words, outside of time, space, and matter – that brought it into being. And that, that being, whoever or whatever it is, must be very powerful and very wise because the universe is amazingly designed. Uh, and you can look at this with the anthropic principle and other principles in cosmology and astronomy. So, uh, so if the first argument is the cosmological argument, which basically says that the universe couldn't have caused itself – and I would just point out, if you can't follow that, if people can't follow that argument, that I would just, I would simply just say this: if you're with someone and you don't know what to say, just ask them this question: Where did the universe come from? How did it get here? And they're going to have to say, Well, the universe caused itself, or the universe was caused by something greater, than or we don't know. Um, but, but what 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 I would say is that the, there's very strong scientific evidence that the universe was created by something outside of itself which sounds a lot like – in fact, it's a very, very small leap. We talked about faith earlier. It's a very small leap to go from uh, talking about you know, God and then evidence for God. It's a very small – it's not a giant leap of faith, but there's evidence that there is a creator, designer of the universe that brought it into being. So it's kind of a small step to go from cosmology to Genesis one one. There's very, very strong evidence for that. The second argument would be the design argument – and it basically goes like this: um, every design implies a designer. There is design in the universe, therefore there must be a designer. And uh, you can look at design on the macro scale, the scale of the very large. You can look at uh, design in the macro, a micro scale, and the scale of the very small. In particular, DNA, and DNA is a essentially a software code. Um, now, the DNA molecule is the most complex no- molecule known to humans, known to mankind. And the issue with uh DNA is the fact that it actually contains genetic code and code and information or and in what uh what Steven Meyer calls complex specified information. So this is information that is has instructions to it, that doesn't come from the natural world. We don't find informa- we don't find the natural world producing new and complex information, increasingly complex information. Um that only comes from a mind. So DNA contains this software code. In fact, even Richard Dawkins even said that that if we could find something that had like a signature in it, like a like a message, uh then we could deduce that there may be a creator. And Stephen Meyer wrote a whole book on it called Signature in the Cell. And the signature in the cell is DNA. So uh this evidence of design in the cell, in fact the deeper that we probe into microbiology, the more complex and the more interlocked everything is that really uh, it's really painting a, a, a really dark scenario for the darwinist uh, who wants to say that natural selection or that or that excuse me that that natural random processes caused all this stuff um so that's the design argument and then the moral argument says that um uh, that there are absolute moral laws and atheism can't account for these moral laws therefore there must be a moral law giver so if, if you have an atheistic worldview then how do you account for these absolute moral laws because around the world you find every civilization, every culture, has these basic set of of uh, moral principles. That, you know, they may disagree on some of the finer points, but there is a fundamental, basic idea of morality are found around the world, and that common morality is called the natural law, the moral law. Uh, Dr. Budziszewski, Professor Budziszewski at University of Texas uh, at Austin, says that. Um, that he basically says it's written on the heart, and that actually uh, goes back to Romans chapter two, where the Apostle Paul makes reference to this as well. Paul says in Romans two, he says the Romans who don't have the Ten Commandments, they don't have the law. He says that they show the ha- that they that people have the law written on their hearts, and uh, people know inherent right and wrong. So the idea is, where did that come from? Um, that only comes from a moral law giver So that would be the moral argument. C.S. Lewis said. Uh, that you know one of the biggest things that kept him from coming to God was a belief in evil, but he said well well how but how did I know what evil was if i knew if i didn 't have a, some idea of what the good was what could, what what was I, why was I calling it evil if i didn't already have some idea of the good so okay. the moral law argues that there is an absolute moral law, or else we wouldn 't be able to tell the difference between Mother Teresa and hitler Abs- well we we could tell the difference, but we couldn 't justify the difference uh, in grounded in reality. So that's, that's those are the three ways that we we sort of do that.
3: That's good, and that uh, that book I really recommend. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, it's like the number one book I think I recommend to people that are, um, you know, that are having questions. I, I remember it was last summer. You know, that was a good friend. Um, it's actually probably it with my brother's friend, my brother-in-law's best friend, and uh, he was just having all kind of. Questions about the faith I remember we met him for lunch And uh, man, he just had so many questions about. Uh, well one of the big ones Is the doctrine of hell Which we am going to talk about tonight uh, But also you know, how do we know God exists How do we know the Bible is reliable Remember I spent almost an hour With him Trying to answer his questions And uh, at the end I gave him that book I don't have enough faith to be an atheist Oh and, cool uh, I remember within two hours he had he was on a Facebook thing. He just read like two chapters. His life had been forever changed by this book, and uh, he's a—he's a student at SES now. I mean, that's wow, that's what really radically changed his life.
4: So, Praise the Lord! That's great.
3: Yeah, I would definitely recommend people get uh, to, to that book from Amazon, or I'm sure they can get it from your show, uh, or from your, your website. Maybe take another sure. minute uh, also. You guys
4: have a TV show, right? And a radio show. Yeah. Yes, we do. We have, uh, people can go to our website. It's uh, crossexamine.org, and uh, you can click on uh, media. Actually, yeah, media and go to TV program, and it has. we have a radio show and a podcast, a blog. Uh, we're on Saturday nights at 10 p.m. Eastern on DirecTV, channel 378, Sky Angel, uh, 126 on the NRB Network. Or if people are not on uh Direct T V they can go they can watch live uh they can click on the NRB network and we have live streaming video there. If you go to our website and click on uh media and go to the T V program, there's a link that people can go to and watch it uh again, Wednesday nights at nine PM and one AM Eastern if you're an insomniac and stay up all night. Uh and then Saturday nights at ten PM Eastern again on Direct TV channel three seventy eight. Um and, again, uh, Wednesday uh, Wednesday at 10 on the Sky Angel Network, uh, the AFA network. This is on the TV program. And uh, our radio broadcast is on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock uh, on AFR, American Family Radio. It's at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, again, you can go to the website and click on our media, go to cross-examine radio, frank interviews, uh, people like John Lennox and uh, people, you know, in apologetics and, and, and culture and Media, he just uh, does a great job of interviewing folks and some really great topics that, that come up. They're also podcasted, so people can go to the podcast and download them for free on iTunes. Um, again, the the, the the website also has a go to store, and we have an apologetics bookstore, so if people are interested in buying apologetics products such as our book, I Don't Have Faith, Be an Atheist, or other types of resources, they can go to that website and uh, find all kinds of resources there.
3: Yeah, it's great, great, uh, great website, great store, bought a lot of stuff out of there. I definitely uh, would recommend you guys check that website out. And uh, what we'll do now is just take a quick break. We'll come back, and we're going to be looking at uh, the doctrine of hell. This is a very important topic, and um, no doubt if you're a Christian and you uh, let people know you're a Christian, which you should, uh, the doctrine of hell will, will certainly come up. Uh, with that being said we will go ahead and uh, we'll take a break and then we'll come back and we will jump into the doctrine of hell.
0: Over three chapters the book of Genesis vividly describes a worldwide flood that began with all the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the floodgates of heaven being opened. The reality of Noah's Flood is the crux of the conflict between evolutionary and biblical worldviews. If this global deluge really happened, then the millions of years of Earth history and evolutionary progression supposedly seen in the fossil record are swept away. The Flood accounts for the major geological features and the vast majority of the fossil record. Indeed, the fossils themselves are a mute testimony to the truth of the Flood. We find billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the Earth. Just what you would expect from the biblical account. If Christians were to believe and effectively defend the biblical account of the flood, then the basis for the evolutionary worldview would largely collapse. Many people would be saved from such a great pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com.
4: Hi, this is Ted Wright, Executive Director of CrossExamine.org, and I want to invite you to come out this summer, August the 8th to the 10th, to Charlotte, North Carolina, to our Cross-Examined Instructors Academy. This year's going to be fantastic. We're going to have Jay Warner Wallace, Greg Kokel, our own Dr. Frank Turek, and many others. If you want to learn more about this, you can go to www.CrossExamined.org and click on CIA to learn more about it and also to apply.
0: This is John MacArthur with another edition of Portraits of Grace. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purifying a heart is the work of the Holy Spirit, but there are some things you must do in response to his prompting. First, realize you can't purify your own heart. Next, put your faith in Jesus Christ, whose sacrifice on the cross is the basis for your cleansing. Finally, study the Bible and pray. As you do so, the Spirit will continue to purify your life. There's no greater joy than knowing you're pure before God and that your life honors Him. May that joy be yours today, and may God use you powerfully for His glory. This is John MacArthur, looking forward to bringing you more Portraits of Grace.
3: It wasn't too long ago I was sitting in the office and um there was a, a lady that was uh cleaning and she was mopping the floor and I had had my Bible there with me and um I don't know exactly what was going on Melissa was sick, so she was in the back and uh you know as we started talking and discussing uh about uh, the Bible and uh, Christianity. One of the very first objections, right, was the very first objection that came out of her mouth: "Was uh, I just don't believe, uh, I don't believe God would uh, send people to hell for eternity? I just can't believe in a God that would do something like that." And numerous times, numerous people that I talked to, um, this is uh, this is one of the number one objections that always come up. So I think it's very important that we know how to deal with this. And we have to do you know we have to be correct, we have to be biblical, we want to be you know accurate know what the Bible says about it, but at the same time, we don't want to be offensive, just to be offensive you know it's a hard doctrine, and uh we want to be we want to be thoughtful uh, in our articulation we want to be more important so, the uh back that, that uh Ted, you back with us, buddy? Can you hear me okay? Yes, Devin. All right. So well, let me ask you, man. When I when I first contacted you, I said, Ted, man, I would love to do another show on the flood." What do you think? And you said, you know, I think we should do a show on the doctrine of hell. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like you say, it's not the most pleasant subject to talk about. Uh, but why do you think it's important that we do a, a whole uh, hour show on this topic?
4: Well thanks Devin. That's a great question um you know yes it is definitely not a pleasant subject to talk about um but let me let me kind of kind go back and uh, say a couple of things as as by way of introduction um you know i I served as a pastor at a local church for about seven years um I've been a youth pastor and uh serving as a minister, you'd have to conduct a lot of funerals and i've I've had my fair share of funerals and uh, it really it really causes you to think about you know, when you're at a funeral and you're conducting the service and you see families and you see what death does, it really, it really caused you to think about the fact that life is short. Um, whether, whether the funeral is for an elderly person or for a young person, I've actually, I've actually had funerals for, for a, a very, very small child very an infant. Um, but it does cause you to see the brevity of life and the shortness of life. In fact, just last week, uh, a week week or so ago, uh, we had the, the Boston bombings. Um, you know, it's according to the CIA, uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, they say about 154,000 people will die every day. Um, in the United States alone, two people will die every second. So if you think about that, every second I, – and I don't know the math. I can do the math on that, but for however long show your show is on in America – that's two people will die every second, I don't know how many seconds or in that. I guess would it' be I i don't know times sixty sixty seconds times whatever how many minutes you do the math on that. That's a lot of people dead in just the time that we've had this radio show. so I think we need to start the discussion by just talking about the fact that life is not all there is um this life i mean that's that's the question i mean the the the, the fundamental question is, is there a life beyond this life? Um, is there is there an afterlife? Do people survive death? Um, you know, since the time of the Egyptians, you know, people have had some sort of belief about the afterlife, and what's interesting today is that we see in our culture um a move, at least at least in Western civilization, we see a move, a shift towards more more and more uh, secularistic worldview. Of course the Hindus believe in reincarnation, uh Buddhists believe in uh nirvana. Or, you know, uh, which is basically the escape from samsara, which is the continuous cycle of birth and life and death and reincarnation. And then in Islam, of course, uh, Muslims believe in an afterlife as well. They definitely believe in an afterlife. Um, how you get there is the key. That's another uh, key thing in this whole issue. Uh, and then, of course, atheism. The belief that there is no God and there is no afterlife, that all we are is just material matter. Um you know they they have no belief in an afterlife at all and um w- what i find interesting is that you know again i don't i know that we're not doing a show on this but i just want to mention this just for those who are out there maybe listening who are atheistic or more materialistic um there've been some very interesting cases that have come to light in recent days uh where people have you know because one of the arguments uh, for again again the secularistic or materialistic world view is that all we are as human beings is just biological machines. And some of these reports where people are basically reported as medically brain dead, their heart's not beating, they have no brain waves, and yet these people come back from these experiences where they sort of kind of have this out-of-body experience. And I'm not trying to defend that right here. All I'm saying is at minimum what that shows is that there's something more to human beings than just matter. That there is a, there's something eternal about a human being. And so if that is true, if there's something more to humanity than just mere matter, then the question of hell becomes a vitally important question. If there is a place uh, where people will go and be tormented forever and ever, and if they survive death, then wouldn't it be a wise thing to talk about that place and to warn people not to go there if there is, in fact, such a place? I I'll, I'll look at it this way. Uh, think about this: If you had a friend, and uh, you know you're you're very good friends, your pals, you've been knowing each other for years, and you find out that your friend co- contracts this horrible disease, and you, and, and they're going to die. Basically, if they don't get a cure for this disease, they are going to die, and you'll never see them again. But somehow or another, you you uh, befriend a scientist, and the scientist actually has a cure for the disease, and he gives you the cure. He actually gives you the cure so that you actually have the cure for the disease. Why wouldn't you tell your friend about the cure? Um, but you know, if you expand that out exponentially in eternity um, for believers, for Christians uh, now, we're talking about Christians. If Christians believe truly that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him, then why would they not? share that with their loved ones with their friends and their family and co-workers um, because eternity is at stake and so so I think the discussion needs to begin with the fact that um, that there does seem to be evidence that there is an afterlife and if there's an afterlife then um, there's only one person who's ever claimed to have come back from the afterlife and has survived death and of course that person is Jesus Christ and and what Jesus says about the afterlife is uh, of utmost importance. And there's, again, I know this is not a show on the resurrection, but as many of uh, many of the listeners know and may be familiar with, there are some amazing arguments uh, and in fact, in fact some amazing evidence in, in the gospels and outside the gospels that the resurrection is actually true, that Jesus literally bodily rose again from the dead, and Jesus spoke about he spoke about these places, he reported about them, he taught about them before he went to the cross and he talked about them after he went to the cross so so Jesus uh... Jesus' words are vitally important in this discussion and so I think a good place to begin to, uh, a discussion about hell is uh, to look at the gospel of Luke chapter 16 verses 19 to 31 and this is of course the story of the rich man and Lazarus which is a story about uh, two people uh, passing away physically and going to the next life, or what we call the afterlife. So does that kind of sort of make sense, a good place to begin, Devin?
3: Yeah, I think, I think so. I was I just going to say, kind of as a quick comment, um, I don't know if you've seen the video. Uh, you know who Penn, uh, well, I think so it's Gillette, you know, Penn and Teller, Yes. The magician? I don't know if you've seen the video on YouTube, Um uh, well, he's, he's a he's a well-known atheist, very outspoken atheist, and um, someone had given him a, given him a Bible, and uh, it, it's just amazing to watch this video because even though he's an atheist, um, he is just going on and on and on about how nice this guy was, uh, and that he would actually have the gut to give him a Bible. And yes, the I saw that I saw him. that interview.
4: Yes, yeah,
3: go ahead. Know, I'm sorry. Know, No, no, you're fine. It's just just as you were saying, though, about, um, you know, it's so important um, to tell people about it because, you know, here's this atheist. Uh, He's saying, you know, how much do you, he actually said, how much do you have to hate a person to not evangelize them, to not tell them about a place called hell? He says, you know, if I I really believe a place like that existed, um, I think you'd have to hate a person not to tell them that. And I'm thinking, man, this, this atheist
4: just you know, has more of a clue than most
3: Christians. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so I I didn't
4: mean to cut you off there. I just... No, no, no. I just, I just want to again. I want to address, and again, maybe you know, maybe some of the listeners out there, and maybe there are some who are Christians who have friends that have have a belief like this, or maybe there are some folks out there who, who, who would consider themselves as uh, maybe agnostic about this issue about the afterlife but let me just let me just leave this uh this grain of sand in your shoe if you will um and it's this that again I'm not I'm not going to defend near death experiences or after death experiences but what I want but I want people to understand is that there does seem to be some evidence of consciousness after the physical body dies and if there is consciousness then you better know what you believe. You better be sure about your atheism. You better be sure about your agnosticism because if there's an afterlife, then that's that's it. I mean, that's you know, the end of the road there. Um so again, I'm not saying that uh I'm not trying to defend these these experiences, you know, these near death experiences. I think there's some uh biblical evidence that says the scripture says that it is appointed for once for a man to die. It's Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty seven. It's appointed once for man to die, and after that the judgment. So I'm not exactly sure what to make of some of these near-death experiences, where these doctors and people, you know, supposedly uh, are brain dead and come back. But at minimum, at minimum, I want people to understand that what it shows is consciousness after the physical death. So maybe we need to redefine what death is. If these people's uh, hearts are not beating and they have no brain waves. Uh, they they are conscious. They actually can see their body outside of their body. And again, I, I don't know what to make of that biblically, but at minimum, what it shows is there's consciousness after death. And so uh, that's just something to think about, something to you know mull over for a while as we discuss this doctrine of hell. Right. Well. But but we can begin if uh, Devin, if you want to, um, and none of the listeners maybe may not be familiar with uh, Luke chapter not uh, sixteen. And uh, do you mind if I uh, if I go through that? Is that okay?
3: Oh, absolutely not. Go, go right ahead. Okay.
4: Um, again, I've got to I've got to find my place here in my Bible. I'm going to be reading from. Uh, let's see. This is the uh, English Standard, the New AS- ESV. I don't know, do you have a copy of that? Do you like it?
3: I do. I have the MacArthur Study Bible, and I actually have the Reformation Study Bible about. It. Okay. Is that is that
4: the ESV? Yeah.
3: Huh? The
4: English Standard Version. Yes sir. Okay. So, um this is in um this is in Luke chapter uh excuse me, Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31 and um this is of course in the context of uh, Jesus always speaking to the Pharisees. The, the little little bit of set for folks. The Pharisees, of course, believed that uh that they were really close to god because of their righteousness and because of their ex- their external righteousness in, in their tradition and their legalism and uh they uh they were wealthy and they looked at they looked at wealth as a symbol of god's uh you know god's blessing so if you if you were wealthy then you were blessed but if you were poor then you were somehow under the curse of god and uh jesus <laughs> he didn't have a i mean he <laughs> He didn't mix words with the Pharisees, and, and this this, uh, this illustration here, this story here, which I believe is actually grounded in reality, it's found in verse 19. Jesus really takes this these ideas of the Pharisees to task, and, and in the process, we learn about the afterlife. Um, and it's a very, very, uh, you know, it illuminates this whole issue very, very greatly. So we read in verse 19, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day, And at his gate was delayed laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Again, let me stop there and say, uh, dogs were not considered to be, uh, uh, they were actually an unclean animal. So, again, this would make this poor man even more loathsome, because not only was he poor, but dogs came and licked his sores. So this guy was triple bad news to the Pharisees. So in verse 22 it says that the poor man died and was carried, once again, another slam to the Pharisees, he was carried, lo and behold, to Abraham's side by the angels. Um, The rich man who also died and was buried, and in Hades, now let me stop there and just say the word Hades is actually not, a a lot of translators and a lot of people think that Hades necessarily means hell, and the Greek word Hades actually means the underworld or the grave. So it doesn't necessarily mean hell. Hades doesn't mean hell. Hades just means the grave. They they both men go to the grave. They go to the afterlife, but it's it's where they are in the afterlife that comes into focus. So so the rich man in verse 23 and in the rich man was died and buried and in Hades being in torment it says, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Then he said, "So let me stop there at verse twenty seven into verse twenty six so what Jesus is saying there what what the rich man is asking Abraham is that if there's any way possible that we could that I could get out of here, and what it's, what seems to indicate here is that there's no way that there's a great chasm, and that uh there's there's no way that you can go from here to there so I'm verse twenty seven he says yeah, almost, go ahead. the
3: way it is it's almost like it's an, an impossibility."
4: Right? Oh, absolutely. It's an impossibility. It's a it's it's eternal. And then he said, So so the man recognizes this in verse twenty seven. Notice he says, Then I then I beg you, father, to send him now notice what he what he asked Abraham to do is very interesting. He asked Abraham to send Lazarus, now who was dead and in, in Abraham's bosom. He said, If you would send Lazarus back to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them lest they come to this place of torment but Abraham said they have Moses and the prophets let them hear them and then he said no father Abraham but if someone uh, someone would uh, go back from the dead they will repent but notice he says in verse 31 he said to them if they do not hear Moses and the prophets neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead very interesting a lot of great interesting stuff going on there so what he's saying is there is that even if there is even if Lazarus were to come back from the dead Abraham says even, even if even Lazarus were to come back from the dead that these brothers still would not believe still would not believe now this is a kind of a uh, a foreshadowing if you will of the uh of the Pharisees because of course Christ rose from the dead and appeared to many and and even his own disciples some of them didn't believe as well so uh, so there's a lot of things it com- brings into focus. It, for for one, it brings into focus the unbelief and the hard heartedness of the Pharisees and their idea of righteousness. But it also illuminates us on this idea of the afterlife, and and on hell and what that is. So uh, so the question becomes, what exactly is hell? I mean, that's that's a great question, and I don't know if you know people have ever it's been you know been defined. Um, but hell is not People think that hell is that people cease to exist, that, well, you know, if someone goes to hell, then, you know, they just kind of just go to sleep and they just don't exist anymore. But according to Scripture, Scripture seems to indicate here in Luke chapter 16 that there is that there will be consciousness uh, in hell. In fact, not only there will, will there be consciousness that Lazarus knew who he was and the rich man knew who he was, he also knew who his brothers were. And he could not get out, and uh, he had memory. So there will be – it seems that there was going to be consciousness, and there's going to be memory. And uh, in, in hell, whatever whatever hell is, there's going to be consciousness and memory. Um, the second thing that uh, we we'll point out about this is that um, it is not cessation. In other words, uh, he didn't cease to exist. He did – his. he survived his body. There was something apart from his body that survived his body – and he did not go to be with God, uh, he went, you know, again to this place we call a place of torment, in which he asked um, you know, if, if he could do if he could uh, have his tongue quenched with just the tip of water. Now again now that wasn't in the text, but one of the things because I do teach the old testament, uh I think listeners should understand that the biblical images of hell actually derive from an actual place that it's actually located outside Jerusalem it's actually located southeast of jerusalem in a place called uh gaben or, or the valley of ben hinnom uh now this is a place in which uh back in the old testament that the idolatrous israelites would actually offer up child sacrifices to the god molech and baal or Baal. and this is can be found in second chronicles chapter 28 verse 3, second chronicles 33 verse 6, jeremiah chapter 7 verses 31-32. Jeremiah 19 verses two through two through six. So, uh, if folks are not familiar with the god Molech. Uh, essentially, the god Molech was uh, was a god in which the, where they would form an idol, and it would be made out of metal or iron, and it would be hollow in the middle. It's kind of like a uh, an animal shaped god, perhaps like a cow, and it had arms outstretched, and uh, and they would light a fire in this idol. And they would actually place their children on the hot flaming hot uh arms of this idol. They would sacrifice the Israelites would. And they were they were, again they were following the pagan practices of the Canaanites and, and Baal as well. So this is a place in which Israelites offer so it was a very wicked place and then eventually it turned into a uh it turned into a place of a garbage dump heap. So if you had something that died, if you were an Israelite living around Jerusalem and there was something that died, that you would actually go and uh you know, put your you know, if your donkey died, if your goat died or whatever, you would go and put your donkey in this big burning garbage heap. It says where uh Jesus later on in the in the gospels describes hell as a place where the worm does not die, the maggot does not die, and the worm is not quenched. And the imagery again is taken from a literal place that really did exist outside Jerusalem. I had an interesting story that I can share on that. Um if you don't mind me sharing, it's kind of gross. Can I share a kind of a gross story? Oh,
3: hey, we love gross stories.
4: Okay. Well, again, I don't I don't mean to be I, I'm not trying to make light of this at all, but I'm just trying to bring some imagery to this idea of the Valley of Ben Hinnom where the image of hell comes from. Um Several years ago, now my wife and I, and my son, we we loved animals, and we have we have a dog and two cats and a lizard and probably no telling what else and our around our there's little critters everywhere. But a few years ago, we had a, a beautiful German Shepherd, and uh, we loved that dog. I loved that dog. My wife loved the dog. My son, he was five years old. He loved the dog, and his name was Max. And uh, to make a long story short, he was. He was not quite a year old yet. He was just a beautiful German shepherd, full-blooded German shepherd, full of energy, full of life, uh, beautiful, beautiful German shepherd. And anyway, uh, he was out playing one afternoon, and we put him up for the night. And we, he was in his kennel uh, outside. Well, we had him out, kind of located outside in this uh, area because he was, he was starting to shed, and it was warm outside. So we kept him in the kennel at night. And he wasn't acting right. And eventually, I went out there to check on him about eleven o'clock. Before I went to bed, I went to bed around eleven o'clock. I went to go check on him, and uh, it, to my shock, I could not—I could not believe it was like a kick in the chest. He was laying dead in his cage, and it just—I was like, what happened to, to Max? It just—I could at first I could, didn't believe it. I went and got my flashlight, and then I went and shined it on Max's head, and sure enough, he was completely dead. It just—it broke my heart. I went in and told my wife and she couldn't believe it either. She went out there, we both just cried, cried, cried. Uh that was the hardest thing to do is to come back and tell my son, you know, that morning. Uh, five can you imagine telling a five year old their their dogs died? That was a that was probably one of the hardest things I ever had to do. But but here's the here's the, the thing that really that I'll never, ever, ever forget. Um well because I didn't know why he died, um, I wanted to, to find out why. Why is my perfectly healthy German Shepherd? Why was he? Why did he die? So we found the place that uh, does autopsies on pets, and uh, we had to take him. I had to take him. That was another hard thing. I had a very good friend of mine who helped me to uh, put him in a uh, kind of a tarp, and we had a truck and we uh, took him to this place. Now, this place that we took it to is a place where they actually test they you know when farm animals like cows or horses when they die uh there's a giant huge dark freezer that they put these dead animals in and we so we had to back up to this back um you know delivery area where these all these animals were and they opened up this 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 huge metal door and they opened up the metal door and the smell that came out and the just the cold dark death of that smell and then i went in there and i saw all these animals just just dead animals everywhere and i just i just broke my heart that i had to take my my beautiful german shepherd and put him in this cold dark dead place with these animals and uh and then i remembered the imagery in the scripture about the valley of ben-hinnom and about the imagery of hell and and about this place where there's nothing but death it is the very it is the very place of death so um, you know, people think that when you die, that that's it. But the scripture talks about a place, uh, something called the second death. Whenever scripture talks about second death, it doesn't mean that you cease to exist. It means that you go to a place where there is. The, it, it is the place of death. And I think that's. I think we've taken the sting. I think in our modern culture, and modern Christians have taken the horror out of hell. Uh, dante in in the middle ages um, you know portrays it i think in a very very illustrative fashion, but it is a horrible, horrible place that no one should go to, and I think that this is the imagery in hell uh that we see uh and the valley of the valley of, of Hinnom is also an appropriate image of hell due to its uh due to its deposit of the bodies that were slain in battle by God's judgment also found in jeremiah so There's a lot of biblical imagery of hell in Scripture. The other imagery of hell that we see is, and the question that people have is the question of fire. Well, is there going to be actual fire? Will there be fire in hell? And again, let me just just point out a couple of passages here. Um, In uh, Jude chapter 20, or Jude verse 23, uh, evangelism is described as this, quote, "...snatching others from the fire." And in, and in Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 through 42, Jesus, this is Jesus, and he says this, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin in all those who do evil, and they will throw them into the fire, fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew chapter eighteen verse nine. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. And then finally, uh, the, the final image of hell is in Revelation chapter twenty verses eleven through fifteen, where John says, the Apostle John writes these words, and he says, "Then I saw a great white throne, and, on, and Him who sat on it, uh, who was seated on it." And earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I looked and, and I looked, and saw the dead, um, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades. Again, there's that word Hades. Again, wow. Hades means the grave. Death and the grave gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death – listen to this now, verse 14 – death and Hades, that is the grave, were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So again, the question comes up, um, is, hell, is the fire in hell real? Well, again, we go back to our passage we looked at earlier, found in Luke chapter 16, verses 23 to 24, where the rich man who was in Hades and in torment, and we can assume that he was in hell or whatever whatever we'd like to call it, Hades, the, the place of torment. It says that he was in torment, and he wanted Lazarus to come and tip the, uh, dip the tip of his finger in water and cool his tongue. And this is what literally what he says. He says, For I am tormented in this flame. So there does contrary to Rob Bell and others, the Bible's unequivocal when it talks about fire. Hell is a real place. Uh it really does exist. And it is it is for people who don't who don't receive the mercy and the grace of God. So yes, it is a, a topic that is not pleasant to talk about. Uh nobody wants to talk about it. It's a horrible place to talk about. But again, we're, we're describing a place that nobody has to go to no one has to go here if they receive the grace of God, but if they don't receive the grace of God, then this is the place they'll go now this brings up the other the other issue and that is what why would God send anybody to hell anyway why you know did God create hell to just torture people well hell was created actually not for people but for for Lucifer uh, for for his uh the angel that rebelled in heaven and uh, drew a third of the angels with him so it wasn't originally created for for human beings, it was created for Lucifer. But again the question still persists. Uh why would why would someone uh you know uh why would someone why would God send someone to hell? Well again, God doesn't send anyone to hell and I would I would put it this way. In fact Frank has done a great job, Frank Turek has done a fantastic job uh of 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 putting it this way. He he asked a question sometimes in some of his his uh discussion forums where he says, um, how many how many girls would raise their hand uh and say that have you ever had a guy that's pursued you and you didn't like him? And of course all the girls will raise their hand, they say, Yes, I've had a guy that's that's you know, chased after me and I didn't really like him and he said, Well, uh what it well, you know, what would you think if the guy forced himself on you? You know, what would you say, what would you say if if a if a guy says, you know, I like you but but you, just, you don't like the guy, and he forces himself on you, that that would not be loving, would it? And, of course, no, it wouldn't. That wouldn't be loving for someone to force himself on you against your will. Well, God's the same way. Why why would God force himself? If, if people don't want a relationship with God, then why would God force himself upon people who don't want to have a relationship with him? Uh, people want their own way. In fact, uh, C.S. Lewis said this way. He said that... Uh, that actually, uh, hell, the door to hell is actually locked on the inside. It's not locked on the outside. People, again, people don't want to, people don't want to be tormented, but they don't want God. They don't, they want to have their own way. And as Lewis said, in the end, there are really only two kind of people: uh, those, who say to God, those who say to God, "Thy will be done," and those to whom God says, "Thy will be done." Um, so, really, hell is a place in which. Those who don't want God, those who don't want their, don't go on God's will, don't want God's love, don't want God's grace, but they want to do their own thing, and they want to be their own God and be their own morality. Uh, God gives them what they want, and hell is a place where they wouldn't actually be happy in heaven. If a, someone who doesn't like, uh, doesn't want God, they wouldn't be wouldn't be happy in a, in a place called heaven. So uh heaven is where Christ is of course and hell is uh is eternal separation from God that's really what it is hell is a place where people are eternally separated from God forever and um, again hell is not just a long prison sentence it is not just it's not a correctional institution it is an eternal destination for those who reject God as Dante says in his uh in his uh book uh the inferno uh, there is a, a again a fictitional account of hell. Over the gates of hell, there is a sign that reads, "Abandon hope, all ye that enter herein." So, uh, so, you know, it's a horrible place, and, and no one has to go there. No one should go there, and you know, go, in fact, it wasn't made for man. There's a there's a great uh, proverb. I think it's a, I don't, I'm not exactly sure who said it, but it says this: the corruption of the best is the worst the corruption of the best is the worst and uh, certainly man was made in God's image and when man rebels against God then man sort of loses, man never completely loses the image of God but that image becomes marred by sin. The image of God in man becomes marred by sin. Um, I think it's very interesting in uh, Isaiah chapter 52 verse 14 uh, where it's describing Jesus, I think very clearly in, in Isaiah 53 for sure, but but I believe in verse 14 of Isaiah 52, it says that he was marred beyond the recognition of a man. That in other words, that Jesus the Messiah would be marred beyond the recognition of a man in, when in the crucifixion. And remember now, Jesus on the cross took all the hell for everyone eternally. No, or not he, he, because he was the eternal being. He took it for people uh, so that they wouldn't have to experience separation from God. That's why on the cross, Jesus said, you know, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani." you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Psalm chapter 22. It's a messianic psalm, and he's basically saying that in this statement of, of great anguish, Jesus is saying that God the Father has turned his back on his son. Well, why would God do that? Because Christ, on the cross, took separate being separated from his father and because he's eternal Jesus is separated from God at that moment that's why he says you know why but at that moment he's bearing the sins of the world so that those who believe in him those who trust in him those who place their faith in him will not perish but have eternal life because Christ experienced that for them but but that's what sin does sin erases the image of God in man so in hell people will be still be people and they'll still be John and Mary and Sally and whoever else, you know, their own personalities. But but it is going to be a corruption of the best. It is going to be a, uh, a you know, horrible, horrible, horrible image.
3: Yeah, that, that brings up a good point. Uh, real quick, let me give the, the phone number out here, uh, 760-542-3907. If you guys have some questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. and put you right through to Ted. Uh, the number is seven six zero five four two three nine oh seven. We've got about twenty minutes left, so feel free to call. But let me ask this, uh Ted. Um the people in hell, um, I look like we just seen that that passage. Um question sometimes brought up. Do you think the people um want to get out? Um you know, I know that U.S. Yes, Lewis photo of The door being locked, uh, kind of from from the inside. I think sometimes we have this idea that uh, the people in hell, you know, would love nothing more than just to, uh, you know, to repent and be in heaven. But do you really think that's that's kind of what's going on there, or, or what are your thoughts?
4: Well, um, I would say it this way, Devin. You look at the you look at the Luke sixteen passage where the rich man, he does ask Abraham. He says. You know, can 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 I get out of this place? Can I go over to where Abraham is? He doesn't want to be there, but when he's told by Abraham of the Gulf, he doesn't argue with him. He he understands the justness of being there. He deserves. He didn't he didn't say that. Well, you know, what he does is he tries to argue. He try well, he tries to convince uh, Abraham to send Lazarus back and and do a miracle so that his brothers don't have to go uh, to this horrible place. So. Uh yeah, I would say the people who are there don't want to be there but they I think people will understand the justness of it. And God is just. I think that yeah, just I think uh
3: that Romans, I
4: can, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go
3: ahead. Oh no, you're Did I, I, I I, was thinking uh, that, as, as you were saying that I was thinking about Romans three, I think it's Romans three nineteen, where it talks about, you know, uh, when God judges us with the law, um that every mouth will be stopped, that the whole world Becoming guilty before God. You know, like, like the fans, they know uh, it's fully
4: just for them to be there. Absolutely. And again, and, and I, I think Christians should be very careful when they talk about this doctrine. It is not something that we take lightly, but I don't think that we should water it down either and make it try to be, you know, make it somehow nice for our culture, Um the scriptures seems to be very clear that it is not a place that you want to go, but it's a real place. And, uh, you know, if it's real, then we need to be passionate about it. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this. I, in fact, when I read this passage, this is one of my favorite Lewis quotes ever um, because of the gravity of it. Uh, in fact, that's the title of the message. that he, he actually preached this and, and, uh, on June the 8th, 8th uh, 1941 at Oxford University at the Church of St. Mary the Virgin. And the name of the book, which was – well, the name of the sermon, it was I should turn to a book, is called The Weight of Glory. The Weight of Glory. And listen to what Lewis says. He says, it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all of our friendships, all of our loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit. He says, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. So that's something to think about. You know, When you yeah. see people, and you go to Starbucks, or if you go to get coffee, or you go out to a restaurant, and you see people, the people that you look at, eternally, they're going to go somewhere eternally. So I think that Christians need to start looking at people differently. And I think this will provide a lot of more motivation and, and encouragement to share Christ, the urgency of sharing the gospel. I think that we've lost the urgency of the gospel. Uh, eternity is at stake. Uh, people are, as Jonathan Edwards said, people are dangling over hell. And again, I don't want to uh... you know make light of that but but it is certainly true you know but by the grace of god uh... we would we're we're all destined for hell uh... uh, apart from god because of Adam's sin but praise the lord because of christ because of what what god did through jesus christ by sending him to this world and dying on the cross for our sins we can we can have everlasting life to christ so again hell is a horrible thing but jesus defeated hell and the grave and those who
3: believe in him
4: will not perish but have everlasting life.
3: Right. And it's not an unjust doctrine either, because it, it really goes back to, uh, you know, the federal headship of Adam and that we all fall in Adam. And, uh, God Absolutely. And, and because of his attributes, he has to quarantine evil. He has to separate evil, And, uh, you know, in his grace and mercy, he said some, and I, I guess that's for guys like Rob Bell and uh and those who want to um affirm some type of universalism, um, and even maybe even some of the annihilation just seems to uh I don't know, I guess they just they think it's somehow it's unfair or it's unjust. But um,
4: That's right. Maybe. Um well, I, I love what uh Doctor Peter Kreft um says if a philosophy professor. He says, quote "If there is no hell, then salvation is universal and automatic. If salvation is universal and automatic, then ultimately there is no free will. Free will and hell go together. Scratch the idea of free will, and you will find underneath it the possibility of hell. If there is no hell and if salvation is automatic, then Christ's sacrificial death was a stupid mistake and a tragic accident. If there is no hell to be saved from, then Jesus is not our Savior, but only our prophet, our guru or our model. But of course, Christ is so much more than our guru or model, and hell is certainly real. If there's no hell, then obviously everyone's going to go to heaven. That's the idea that Rob Bell is flirting with, and really won't really want you know set down a, a firm stake that he doesn't really understand how you know in the end it, he kind of flirts with the idea. In the end, is it possible that love wins in the end? And uh, how I wish that were so. But again, if free will is to, is true and we we have human free will then certainly uh that goes together with hell and it is a certainly a just uh, it, it also is a uh, god's justice demands it uh demands a hell uh so you know if there's no god is just and he will certainly judge those who uh you know those who do evil uh such as Hitler and and, and other folks who, who don't believe in, in God. And also let me point out as well, uh I don't we, we don't really have time to go into it, but I do think that scripture teaches that there are uh that there are levels of torment uh in hell, just as there are levels of um, you know, glory in heaven. Now that doesn't mean that, you know, that, you know, people will suffer less, but but I do think that there will be uh there will be levels. God is a just God and in the end uh, people will be exactly where they need to be in either either heaven or hell So I don't have time to develop that here But, but I do think their scripture does teach that That there will be levels of torment or or, or pleasure and glory uh, in heaven
3: Right I'm just thinking, you know, um, you have people like you know, Rob Bell That seem to, um, you know, they want to affirm uh, universalism and and that, but I'm, I was also thinking, because um, I can't reconcile God sending the people to you help know, for eternity. But, uh, you know, it's funny. Last week, my mother called me very upset uh, because she just read an article. Uh, she, she's really gay, like, in the in the Bible prophecy and, you know, about studying that stuff. She just read an article by David Reagan, uh, Prophecy in the News. Are you familiar with him? No, I'm not. Um, lamb, lo- lamb and Lion Ministries. He's a pretty well-known guy. I mean, Ron Rhodes, uh, several people have been on a show. Okay. He's a BTS guy. Uh, but he wrote a whole article defending, uh, I guess, the traditionalist view and uh, saying for him he just couldn't understand possibly how uh, God could, um, you know, send people to hell for eternity. So you have people like Rob Bell that are you know, theologically liberal, and uh, you know, obviously, you know, are not standing strong on scripture. But then you also have guys like David Reagan that are like, you know, really conservative, dispensationalist, the whole nine yards and he's he's uh seeming to have a, a you know, a, a same problem trying to reconcile. What do you say to those who uh, Because I, I see it. I see I see annihilationism really kind of gaining ground in the Christian community. What do you what What do you say to, to that? You know, I, I have
4: to go with you know when you're talking about the doctrine of hell, you have to go with scripture. I and mean, this is squarely in in special revelation. It's not you you can't you can't muse about hell in general revelation because it's something that so so the authority for you know for discussing any authority in hell has got to be scripture. And, uh, you know, when you read Scripture, it's very clear that it is not annihilation, especially with the example that I just gave in Luke chapter 16. The rich man knew who he was uh, in hell. It wasn't that he was annihilated. Uh, So, again, uh, there's, there's, you know, God God certainly – I guess God has the power to do that, but – that doesn't seem to be even you know even satan was not annihilated why did, why a bigger question could be you know why didn't he just annihilate satan when he rebelled and he didn't do that so uh so god's got to have a higher purpose for those things uh but as far as annihilationism goes um i think it's just a sign of the times in our in our culture in which we want to we want to make uh, this doctrine uh, seem much more um you know uh palpable acceptable you know, we, we want to make it uh, sound good and be, you know, we want people to like God. And uh, certainly, yes, God, but but the Bible is very clear about that. In fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than he did in heaven. So he he himself thought it was an important doctrine to talk about and, uh, and describe it in very, very vivid terms. And uh, terms that were literal terms that were not metaphorical terms.
3: Yeah, you know, I put this out there for the people who had uh, questions. Uh, so feel free to put it on the social media we'd ask and uh have a gentleman from CAA um, saying you know we may reject universalism, uh but we should be open to um, conditionalism uh, as an acceptable alternative. But I think kind of as as you just said, uh, that's some of the some of the problems with that, I guess to be trying to square that with survival in the Bible. Exactly. And and, and let me
4: also point out, in in connection with with that statement, um, not just one verse, but consistently what the Scripture teaches about any verse. So, you know, as as Greg Kokel says, you never read just one verse. Um, You have to look at the context, context, context. So any doctrine, whether it's angelology or whether it's uh, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, whether it's Christology or whatever, you take the entire counsel of Scripture – and uh you look at what it says about any particular doctrine and i think when you do that i think it's a pretty strong case that annihilationism is doesn't really hold a, a lot of water i think that you have to do a lot of a lot of isojesus a lot of reading your theology into the text rather than rather than allowing the text to speak for itself or, ra- or rather you know looking at the text in a straightforward manner so i think that uh annihilationism just doesn't is a is a gross misreading of the text,
3: yeah um, um I think, yeah I think, I think you're uh, you're absolutely right one quick another point I guess we could say, too is a lot of times the atheists do you know, this caricature um of uh, what hell is and uh, I think I remember when I picked the problem of evil class that the guy for they made a big distinction between torture and torment. Maybe
4: you, could, you could talk about that. Yes. Yeah, tor- torture is just like sadistic just like for like like a someone who tortures like I I was a, I was in the military and uh one of my well, my job in the military in the Air Force actually I was a survival instructor and uh we had to go through training up in uh, up in uh Washington state and uh we learned about some of the torture techniques that the the Viet Cong did to the American servicemen as well as uh, some of the uh, Japanese and the Japanese concentration camps in World War II, and some of these, uh, you know, concentration camp leaders, they were sadistic in that they enjoyed torturing uh, U.S. military personnel. So that's what torture—torture torture is like, just for the sake of, you know, the other person gets pleasure from torturing someone, but or tormenting, uh, to, and torment actually is. So, so let me let me set back up and say this: that torture is coming from someone else. And applying it to, you know, to a person. So in other words, it's, it's not coming from myself. It's coming from someone who's beating me, or something from is hitting me. Whereas torment is something that is coming from myself. You can be, you can be a like, a, for instance, you know, the term tormented soul. It's kind of like, a, you know, reg- I, I guess you could say great regret. You know, it's like you ever, you ever made a decision that you've g- regretted, and it kind of just torments you. Well. That's just a, just a beginning idea of what the idea of torment and hell. You'll, it's, it, it will be the place of regret. The place of you know, eternal regret.
3: I remember watching this. Uh, it was one of the MSNBC shows uh, to catch a predator. And uh, it's a sting operation I don't know if you're familiar with. it, but uh, these these guys that, are, that go and, and basically prey on little boys and little girls. Uh, one of the guys, though, that's in the You know, it's a hidden camera, and people, um, you know, they just think it's a little girl or a little boy home. Uh, This one particular person that came in, he's actually like in the moraine. and um, he came in the house for, you know, several hours to get there, and uh, he comes in and thinks it's going to be the little girl, and all of a sudden Chris Hansen steps out, and, uh, you know, he says who he is, and uh, this guy, literally, I mean, he is just, you know, beside himself he He's like he gets on his knees and like, he like has his hands behind his head, and he was saying that yeah uh, Chris Hansen was saying how you know he didn't understand at the time, but he came to find out that this guy was you know an ex marine and that was I guess one of the prisoner of war uh postures that they take. and uh I was just you know I was thinking when I saw that, man, that's that's going be kind of what it's like you know when people stand before christ and judgment it's such torment,' such agony such you know,
4: with breath, knowing that damn the gig is up. You know, absolutely. I, you know, I, I think about people like I, and I and again, I, again, I don't take no. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked, and uh, as Christians, we should not gloat over people who go to eternal damnation and uh, separation from God. But you know, there are some very famous people that I have great respect and admiration for in so many areas. Yet, as far as I, as far as we understand, they have rejected God, and if they didn't make any last minute, uh, you know, conversions, then it, Scripture seems to indicate that that's where they are. And I don't think people like Carl Sagan, who was a brilliant, brilliant guy, and, and he had a lot of just brilliant insights into the into the cosmos. Yet, he consistently rejected God and rejected Christ and religion of all types. And uh, I can just imagine, you know, here's this brilliant guy who understood the universe in ways that we couldn't – as Christians, we don't even understand. And he saw the glory of God, and yet there he is. Now he's in prison in in an eternal place of torment, and he knew all these things, and yet it didn't lead him to an understanding of God. He rejected it based not on – Scientific reasons, but based on moral reasons. And now he knows that. If, if, if indeed that's where he is, he knows that. And now he's got to think about that for all eternity. That's um, a, a horrible, it's a horrible, horrible thing to think about. a Horrible proposition to think about. But my main motivation, though, Devin. Again, I, let me just say this: uh, I think hell is an apologetic topic, and I think that. Uh, but I don't think you know people will re- or is going to really get. We're going to get very far if they try to, you know, discuss this issue with their non-safe friends. I think I think we should know some things about it. But the main reason why I wanted to discuss it on your radio show is really to motivate Christians, to motivate believers that that there is a place called hell, and it really does exist. And um, there will be torment there, and there are people there right now as we speak. In fact, again, to go back to the CIA, uh, two people die every second in the United States. So, Every two seconds that go by, or every second that goes by, two people will die. So in this radio show, there have been dozens and dozens of people that have have slipped into eternity. And the Bible says, Scripture is very clear, that wide is the gate. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Many there be that go uh, down it. But narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. And uh, I just want to encourage Christians to, to hold up Christ, to preach Christ, to live a Christ-like life and to uh, to pray for the lost friends and to share Christ with people because, he, you know, the time is short, and who knows? I mean, we don't know. Uh, no one knows when Christ is going to return, but uh, we do want to be busy uh, sharing Christ and sharing his love with people who, who, who are around us. Our message is not, again, our message is not hell. The Christian's message is that Christ loves you, that God, God so loved the world that he gave his only son – his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him and trust in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So that's our message. Our message is not a message of hell and doom and gloom. Our message is a message of hope. Um, but, yeah. the, but, the, but the flip side of that is that if people don't receive him, then God is not going to force them to be in his presence forever, and they are going to go to another place, and that's the place called hell. That's
3: right. Um no, I think it was in uh, him who was saying, so, you know, sadly, in Christians when we share the faith, uh, we immediately jump to the good news and skip right over the bad news. And if you just skip over the bad news, the good news just doesn't make any sense. And so we have to start with the bad news, which is the fall in Adam and that we're, you know, in, sin, in Adam and sin because we've actually sinned ourselves. And that uh, there's some of the day when we finish be um, the world and right we're out of time man love to have you back again soon appreciate you giving up the time and being on
4: well thank you for having me on Devin appreciate it enjoyed it
3: alright man until next time God bless you God bless alright folks that's uh, Ted Wright you've uh, been on the show before we did a thing on uh, Noah's Flood if you guys want to go back and look in the podcast uh, you'll find that there uh' it was a great show uh we'll have them back on definitely again it's uh definitely a wealth of knowledge. remember next week we're gonna have Eric Chabot, so uh bring on your uh you know your uh, Jewish friends and uh, we will deal with some of those objections so thanks for joining us and God bless yeah
2: Mike check Mike, check one, two, one, two, one, two For you. Yeah, Uh -uh. I'm saying, word up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study. The person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh. They say it's not practical enough Uh Just give me Jesus, that will be enough That seems plausible and logical Nobody wants to be all cold and theological But being a theologian's not optional Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal Either it accurately portrays His majesty Or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy You can do a global search. This walk is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical, we gotta see the importance of Biblical Theology. What do I mean by Biblical Theology? The whole theme of the Scripture and God's the key is following the Bible's storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts? He finishes with dedication, a work of art from Genesis to Revelation from God's creation to man's fall, to redemption, to consummation. His designs and structure each time will flush her. What mind can instruct the Divine Conductor? His worthiness sits in in the heavens, sturdy and fixed To see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. You, Lord. He gave us the word, providing us correction yeah. in the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections, so we can follow the Bible, not just our affections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's going to be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace with in our death, yeah, because we we'll know the meaning is of Jesus, Jesus and it. his death. Yeah. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology.